So if 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 you're listening, Olivia, we really like your really like your movies. <laughs> yeah, a big shout out to Olivia, uh, who is like turning 104 soon, I think. Hello and welcome to Podhard with uh, me, Jonas Högberg. Anders Hultqvist. And for the first time in our English-speaking variant of this pod, we have a fantastic guest with us. None other than Alex Rallo. Is that the way you pronounce it? It is, yeah. Hello, Alex. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Alex is uh, the fantastic man behind the fantastic Twitter handle uh, Head Exposure. Uh, is also part of uh, Film Exposure, which is um, well a site dedicated to movies. And uh, I'm guessing it's not only action movies, movies as a whole. Correct. Correct. Yeah. But uh, from what I've gathered, you seem to be quite enamored with action movies alex <laughs> yeah that's 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 right yeah uh when i started the the twitter account uh, i was only um, posting headshots um and then i decided that uh it was too much work <laughs> so um <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i i changed uh the concept of uh of the account and i'm just posting about action movies mostly sometimes horror movies sometimes other stuff as well but mostly action movies that um uh, I found interesting well, action scenes. Sometimes there sometimes there are good scenes in mediocre movies. So um, I'm mostly focused on on good good stuff that I find you know anywhere. Uh, yeah, but um, I'm really happy to be here because we're talking the history of action cinema. So <laughs> really yeah. glad you thought of me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now now recently you've you've dug up a lot of interesting stuff that uh, we kind of missed. So so we were very happy to have you on here. <laughs> you kind of like uh, dug up the Balrog of action cinema, <laughs> digging deep on some stuff. So so really it's, fun. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's I think I think the tragic part of uh, of being on. Uh, on Twitter and seeing film discussion is that um, is, is to see that it's always the same stuff that comes up, you know. Uh, so I think it's nice to try to talk about movies that have been mostly forgotten or you know are not talked about that much. Mm. Broaden the perspective. Exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, Alex, uh, just quickly, what kind of action movies do you tend to gravitate toward? Uh, the ones where you can see what's happening. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, those. Yeah. Those, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, no, I, it's, pretty, it's a pretty borderless perspective. So like from anywhere in the world and any, any era of filmmaking. Um, mostly interested in uh, anyone who can push the envelope, who can try new stuff, who can, or who can make like, you know, old stuff feel fresh um there's always a way you know like uh i'm i'm also a great admirer of whoever 
of you know of great technicians uh mm. like masterful technicians so even if they don't bring anything new to the table if they do something that's just pitch perfect and yeah that's my that's my jam as well um mm. uh and not really like i don't really have any uh i don't really have any favorites really it's just just the good stuff i'm, I'm not a big fan of uh handheld and shaky cam but it works when it works you know some some filmmakers are good at it and when they are then i'm there for it mm. uh, and you talked about uh being an admirer of uh, great technicians movie makers that uh, get things uh done maybe not uh, showing off uh, as much uh which i think summarizes the uh filmmaker we're talking about today uh mr michael curtis from uh, hungary um who well he wasn't um he wasn't uh, enamored as much as uh, other hollywood uh, filmmakers by the uh, uh the french wave guys that uh, you know uh, brought up Hitchcock and uh, Hughes and other filmmakers to... They elevated them to a position, an author position. Michael Curtis perhaps uh, got... Uh, well, he was okay, many thought. He, he always had uh, uh, an, uh, a standard, but uh, he didn't push the envelope, so to say. Well, that, that's what they said, at least. Um, so... <laughs> but what, what do, do you, you say, say? Well, Alex? the thing the thing with curtis is that is that he was he was really a studio filmmaker mm. he, you know he had a contract with the studio and he made films for that studio and he made the films he was asked to make uh when uh you know hughes was working more independently and you know hitchcock really had like his name was becoming famous well not in the beginning but eventually his name became famous in and of itself um but curtis was really like uh someone who would put the the movie first and you know that what mattered to him was tell a good story tell it well and make a successful film and you know a lot of his films were extremely successful at the box office and uh and a lot of them were also very well received by uh, critics um mm. so i think maybe he didn't cultivate it himself you know this the image of the author um but i think as far as studio filmmakers go uh, in my humble opinion he was one of the most efficient and one of the most interesting yeah i mean uh, of course uh, michael curtis uh, has casablanca uh, on his uh, cv i mean that not that many directors can claim uh, such a um such a uh, epoch uh, setting movie uh, he has Casablanca and he has other stuff like White Christmas and Angels with Dirty Faces mm. uh, you know in other genres and those are films that have really made a huge impact on the American culture yeah definitely I mean Yankee Doodle Dandy Mildred Pierce uh, he made uh, he was such a versatile director as well I mean he made movies in all sorts of genres really he could uh, very effortlessly move uh, with grace between the movie genres. Made light comedies, made swashbucklers, uh, made musicals, uh, made dramas, 
I mean, he basically knew it all. He did, yeah, yeah. Well, he was, he, even before arriving in Hollywood, he was very experienced. Uh, mm. I think he arrived when he was like 39 years old or something. And uh, mm. he had made 64 films in Europe <laughs> by the yeah. time he arrived in Hollywood. So, you know, he knew what he was doing already. Uh, so he, he had been extremely uh, prolific during the silent era. Um, and like today we, we're going to talk about uh, sound films, obviously. And uh, mm, yeah. that's something that should be noted as well, is that, the, you know, the transition to silent to sound did not affect his quality or output. Like he was still as prolific. Sometimes he would make three or four pictures a year. I would say even more than that. We, we checked up his, uh, his CV on IMDb and uh, he made like uh, six or seven movies uh, most of the years during the 30s. Uh, oh, this okay. <laughs> was a man who was like a workaholic beyond workaholics. Yeah. I mean, he, he was only happy when he was directing movies. Um, so, uh, yeah, a very special kind of uh, person. Um, and, you know, I, I knew very little about uh, Michael Curtis going into this, but uh, I have been a bit enamored with the guy, I have to say. Um, I think he has uh, a great eye for framing, and uh, he always uses a moving camera uh, as much as he can in the images. And... Uh, and I've read a book about him, and so I know that uh, uh, he had lots of clashes with his producer, Hal Wallace, about uh, uh, he wanted the movie done quickly and on budget, and Michael Curtis always did his best to come up with new scenes um, and uh, wanted always to do the best possible work to all these scenes, while the producer and Jack Warner... Uh, only wanted him to do these uh, plain uh, um, two camera solutions uh, going back and forth between actors. Um, so yeah, you have to give Curtis credit for actually wanting to uh, uh, bring something special, something extra to these movies. Yeah, you're, you're, you're referring to the book by uh, Alan K. Rode, yeah, on Curtis? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I had actually had a look at it uh, yesterday. Uh, I read I read a good part of it and it's it's almost humorous how for every film that he talks about there is a paragraph about Hal Wallace sending a memo to Curtis saying yeah. what the hell are you doing just film the <laughs> script <laughs> and every single time Curtis would ignore yeah. the memos and just do his thing and the films would be hugely successful. Yeah, just goes to show uh, let uh, Curtis do his uh, thing. Uh, yes, and so, uh, yes, we're talking about three movies today, um, talking about three swashbuckler movies that Michael Curtis did, and all of them starring Errol Flynn. Uh, Anders, what's your uh, relation to uh, Errol? Mainly, I would say I watched these movies uh, as a kid, maybe 10 to 12 years, uh, mm. and and. F- it was very exciting at that time, uh, but I haven't returned to much of them. It's one of the things for this project that we are doing to either return to stuff that uh, I'm interested to see again or just stuff that I haven't seen uh, to see, uh, but that we that I won't do on my own, <laughs> so to say. So I'm forced to watch some stuff uh, uh, for this podcast. Uh, yeah, that's good. 
uh, coming out of your comfort zone. So uh, we're we're talking about uh, three movies. Uh, we're talking about Captain Blood. Uh, we're talking about the Adventures of Robin Hood, and we're talking about the Seahawk. Uh, and all of these are called swashbuckler movies. Um, so what is a swashbuckler movie? Would you care to elaborate, Alex? What's a swashbuckler movie? Uh, <laughs> I think well, I'm not I'm not very good with etymology, but uh, I think <laughs> you know there's two parts to the name swash and, and buckle, and mm. the idea was that swash was the idea of hitting with the sword, and buckle was like a small shield. Uh, and I think when when the name appeared originally, it was it was kind of derogative, you know. Mm. Uh, pejorative you know um, but uh, the, the genre of swashbucklers is uh, it comes from you know a movement of romanticism from literature obviously and a movement that was created against enlightenment that promotes imagination and dreams individualism and also that is quite fascinated with the past uh, mm. that's why most swashbucklers you know are set in or all are set in the past so it's uh you know it's uh, when you when you try to trace the history of the genre uh even through literature it's uh you have to look at um writers like uh, byron or keats even shelley and and even like and even music has been influenced by romanticism like we have berlioz and wagner and uh, uh Litz as well who will be important later on because um Korn Gold, the composer of all three films that we're talking about today, was hugely influenced by uh, the music from these uh, composers. Um, so yeah, then obviously there's uh, Alexandre Dumas who wrote uh, The Three Musketeers and, uh, uh, you know, there's Robert Louis Stevenson and uh, other writers and Raphael Sabatini uh, who wrote the novels Captain Blood and The Seahawk, so whose work has been adapted numerous times in the genre. Mm. And uh, so the swashbuckler is, uh, I think, you know, when you when you try to look at the history of action cinema, uh, you had, you know, in, in the silent period, you really had like the chase film uh, and uh, mm. sometimes there's like boxing movies as well, you know, uh, mm. in the silent yeah. era, uh, but not much else in terms of codified uh, genres, you know, mm. that mm. could be classified as action and i think the swashbuckler was one of the first ones where you could see you know you, you see a couple of elements on screen and you think immediately oh okay i'm watching i'm watching that genre of film you know mm. um so it's set in the past there's a chivalrous uh hero uh even if he's an outlaw usually he's like you know very gallant and uh, mm. like a gentleman um it's uh, just men like i think until the 50s or so it's just men the heroes and uh yeah sword action uh some sea action as well uh yeah. as we're gonna see uh, and uh yeah i know i know you guys have covered some of them because obviously you've talked about uh, douglas fairbanks um, absolutely in your yeah. in your previous episodes so uh so i think 1920 is really the year where the first cycle of swashbucklers starts mm. uh, with the mark of zorro uh, and it lasts until the Iron Mask, nineteen twenty-nine, uh, and it's all like Douglas Fairbanks. He was the he was the the engine really propelling the genre mm. in Hollywood at the time, and he set the standard for 
a lot of stuff like a lot of the action uh, a lot of the pace and a lot of the structure of the stories as well yeah and the the so the the movies we're talking about today they're they're from the second cycle of uh hollywood swashbucklers there was like a there was like a, a break you know in the in the production the arrival of sound technology made it harder to make those adventures uh for a couple of years and then also the flavor changed you know in the in the in the movie going audience i'm sure you i'm sure you have had to to walk your way through a lot of gangster pictures and you know stuff like this so at the time that was uh, uh you know that was what people wanted to see mm. uh but you know ironically speaking it's the haze code that you were mentioning the haze code in your 1930 episode yeah um, i know and uh, the haze code like actually was a factor for the return of the swashbuckler because mm-hmm. uh, oh, okay you know uh, we can't show gangsters anymore we can't show like uh, you know uh, sexy stuff and we can't show like uh, mm-hmm. illegal stuff you know uh, uh, so what what when uh, what better setting than uh, the past <laughs> and a chivalrous hero you know fighting mm-hmm. yeah. for freedom so, uh, so really the moral outrage at the time that brought forth the haze code um, was the reason why well one of the reasons why uh, the swashbucklers made a return in the 30s yeah sorry that was a bit of a long-winded answer to your question Jonas yeah <laughs> I'm uh, wondering uh, Anders have you fallen asleep now or are you still with us <laughs> no I was uh, I, I'm, I'm aiming for uh, going to sleep to listening to your uh, b- beautiful voices <laughs> so I, I was thinking if you could just go on for hours you too but uh, it reminds me of uh, Douglas Fairbanks Robin Hood mm. that intertitle that said uh, when men were men and blah 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 <laughs> there's a great intertitle in that one that I remember yeah. uh, or faintly remember mm. But uh, about that romanticized uh, view on history and uh, when men were men and built castles and stuff, <laughs> I think it said. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's the perfect setting for the, this romantic, romantic yeah. idea of adventure. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, Errol Flynn, uh, of course, uh, he became uh, Douglas Fairbanks' uh, successor um, and uh, was... Well, Errol Flynn is a story in in himself, of course. Him being, him ha- him having a very uh, weird backstory before coming into movies. Uh, I mean, he left Australia, um, bamboozling a lady, stealing her jewels, uh, going on a boat to London. Uh, finding work in a theater, uh, using the jewels to further his uh, career uh, in um, in arts and crafts, and uh, so he is a pirate. Yeah, that's what I'm. Well, that's what I'm getting at. He was a bit of a rogue, actually, so. Errol Flynn, <laughs> um, and he was also a bit of a, a lucky dude, uh, like a Gladstone Gander uh, from the uh, Disney universe. The, the character that, that has all the luck in the world. Because, uh, I mean, he, he got everything served to him on, like, um, in Sweden, we would call it a räke macka, a shrimp uh, sandwich. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, uh, he, he was lucky that uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. actually saw him perform on stage in London and uh, saw that, well... This guy, he has something. He reminds me of dad in a way. And uh, sort of recommended um, Errol Flynn to Warner Bros. 
who had their own people in London uh, checking for new talent. And so uh, Errol Flynn was shipped away to uh, Los Angeles. Um, and uh, like his second, uh, his second role, I think, was the lead in Captain Blood. Uh, and of course, this was Warner Bros' biggest movie uh, since uh, the silent era. So a lot of money was hanging on this movie. Uh, and it was pretty unheard of back then that you would put a totally unknown person in the lead of a movie. But uh, they had so much faith in this guy uh, that he had the charisma going for him. Um, and uh, yeah, eventually it worked out perfectly, but uh, it was a bit of a gamble, to say the least. I think I think it's, uh, it's really the combination of uh, Flynn and Curtis that made Captain Blood the success it was you know because uh, from all accounts Flynn wasn't very good as an actor in the beginning yeah uh, you know he, tr- he struggled with uh, his deliveries and uh, he 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 felt like people said he was a bit wooden uh, and like they I, th- I think they tried to shoot uh, Captain Blood uh, in sequence more or less mm. Uh, mm. but they had to go back in the end to the first scenes to reshoot them because he had he had become much better by the end of the of the production than he was in the beginning uh and i i know that i, I haven't read a lot about uh, errol flynn uh, i tend to i tend to be more interested in uh, in the directors uh, than the actors but um i know he despised uh, michael curtis um he he hated working with him uh found him too tyrannical and uh, uh there were stories about curtis not caring about animals on set which uh, mm. flynn didn't didn't like at all but uh, but at that time, the studio was calling the shots in who yeah. was directing the picture and who was starring in it. So even after Errol Flynn had become, you know, a star, he had still had to work with Curtis because Warner Brothers said so. He was, well, he he owed his stardom to the swashbuckler, but also mm-hmm. he, in the end, he grew resentful of this, you know, typecasting that he had become the, the figure of the genre. Absolutely. And uh, he and Curtis actually did like 12 movies together, uh, which, I mean, <clears throat> if you hated each other by the end of the first movie, <laughs> it would be a very strenuous uh, relationship, to say the least. <laughs> That's some stamina, yeah. Ma- yeah. <laughs> Maybe showing a bit in the Seahawk that he, <laughs> that it was a strained relation and that he was tired of the genre. I think he's kind of, uh, yeah, just going uh, through the motions in that one. Or not even going through the motions. I, I, <laughs> I think he's, uh, he's at his best in this first one, Captain Blood. So that's your favorite, eh? I don't know about Errol Flynn. It, 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 I think the character fits him well. There's this uh, kind of humble and proud arrogance to this uh, blood character mm. that that he uh, yeah it's basically the image i have of flynn or i i, I think he presents it's, it 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 well so uh, yeah it suits him yeah so uh, captain blood then uh, just a quick uh, reminder of the plot for everybody who's listening uh it's based i think in the 16th century or something like that uh so you got a lot of uh, ships. It's based in the Caribbean. Um, and uh, 
well, the, the movie begins in uh, England where this uh, character, Peter Blood, uh, a physician um, played by Errol Flynn, is being falsely accused of uh, supporting rebels uh, and is being put in chains and uh, transported to the um, Caribbeans um, where he's being bought by Olivia de Havilland's uh, character, Arabella Bishop. Uh, and later on, he of course breaks free from his chains, uh, elopes, steals a ship, and becomes a pirate. Um, so uh, yeah, that's the uh, basic gist of it. Um, so just want to know, what did you guys uh, think of it? Alex, what's your opinion on Captain Blood? I'm going to repeat myself a lot tonight because I, I really I like all, <laughs> I like all three movies that. Um we're talking about uh but maybe i don't know like you know when i approach when i approach movies i always ask myself questions like how is it uh, how is it uh, what's its importance historically speaking uh you know what did it uh, what did it bring to the table at the time and uh, stuff like that and that always factors in my appreciation of the of the films so uh, what do you think of captain blood uh it's not my favorite of the three uh, because uh, there were still some budget limitations, uh, you know, like Warner felt that the genre was making a comeback, but they weren't sure. So they said, okay, this has to come in at under $1 million. So Hal Wallace was really on Curtis's back all the time, constant memos and attempts at micromanagement. <laughs> all unfruitful, obviously, <laughs> but, uh, but Curtis, yeah. <laughs> Curtis did make the picture for less than $1 million. Um, and uh yeah like there were there were two there were two other films like in 1934 that were um uh my that were quite successful uh i think it was treasure island and the count of monte, monte cristo they were like two adventure period movies mm. and so warner saw this and they were like okay we have to get into the game as well so let's let's do let's do captain blood there was a there was a previous adaptation of captain blood from 1924, uh, mm. from uh, the Vitograph studio, which had been bought by that time by Warner. So Warner owned the previous adaptation as well. And they thought, okay, let's, let's uh, make it again. And uh, it's, um, you know, I think it's a film that's interesting because it's uh, it's, it's set in stone, this kind of double, like double bad guy structure that comes back in a lot of swashbucklers afterwards. Uh, you're gonna have like the the mm. mid film uh, action set piece, and then the the final one. Mm. Uh, you're gonna have like always gonna have like two villains. Uh, one usually doesn't fight really; like he's he's kind of a regent or a king or uh, you know something like that. But he's uh, he's not a fighting villain. But the the second one uh, is always like the 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 most the most physical energetic bad guy and uh, that's something you you see here uh, very clearly with uh, with uh, basil rathbone he's playing levasseur who's a pirate as well and uh, who will uh, have a duel with uh, peter blood in the middle of the film and then you have the also the the other character played by lionel atwell who's the the main bad guy who but who is not the fighting bad guy so that's that's an interesting structure and uh, in terms of action because that's what we're talking about here, really. Uh, even with the budget limitations, 
you can see huge huge difference with the 1924 films like there's only 10 years difference but really like it it looks a world apart uh, and so uh, the 1935 version the Curtis version was filmed mostly in the studio and they built the sets for the plantation the the ship's decks the streets of port royal uh, so they didn't have full-scale ships uh, but they have like uh, models 18 foot models uh, so the set piece like they remain pretty economical uh, but i think they're still fairly impressive uh, i i really like both the duel and the the final attack on the french ship sorry french ship um curtis i think has a lot of ideas uh they, i think the only the only time where it shows that they couldn't do all that they wanted was the first really action set piece when uh, when you know the Spaniards they attack uh, Port mm. Royal and then blood leads the slaves to take the the Spanish ship and destroy like the uh, the small boats where the Spaniards are. Uh, so mm. here you can really see the models. Uh, you can really see that uh, the back projection maybe isn't the best. Uh, yeah. You can you can see like there's like just stick men inside of the <laughs> inside of the boats if you if you pay close <laughs> attention. Um, yeah. and I've read so I've read that they reused footage from the 1925 film but I uh, oh I, uh, I, I've read that but I've, I've had a look at it and I couldn't identify mm. any of the shots that were repeated so I'm not sure about that but uh, I, I've read several sources that said that they, they used stock footage uh, so it's okay. possible for, for this set piece anyway but this, uh, I, I like I like that scene though that uh, that first Spanish attack. There's some nice explosions mm. and uh, and uh, destruction and uh, and Curtis Curtis uh, I, can do some of his favorite occupation there. Uh, film some shadows uh, <laughs> scuttling across uh, walls. Yeah, he so, sure loves those shadows. Dynamic scene. Well, you know, he's he's a and, European <laughs> director who came from. A yeah. very expressionist <laughs> yeah, exactly. milieu, yeah. so yeah, it's not natural, I think. It looks really good, but it's really funny. I, I was thinking about you. You guys talk about uh, the producer sending notes and uh, what the hell are you doing all the time? And and then he deliver a movie within budget, and it's a, it's a success. So they can't uh, <laughs> they can't just discard him either. So. I know yeah, they, they they knew that he was good and that. And that yeah. he like all yeah. everything that he did, he did because he thought it was good for the film, and not because like you yeah. know uh, he was being like uh, too extravagant or whatever. But uh, but Hal no. Wallace was he was kind of a control freak, I think, and he was trying you know to uh, go up the ranks in the you know producer hierarchy at Warner Brothers, and uh, he really wanted to micromanage what uh, Curtis was doing. But uh, it's 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 really it's really funny how every time. Curtis would, mm. uh, you know, deliver something perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's very funny reading that book. Yeah, every new movie, <laughs> it's like the same procedure as the second, uh, as the last movie. It's uh, it's a great read, by the way. It's a it's a good book. What about you, Jonas? What do you think of that that scene? Uh, well, uh, that scene is pretty good. Uh, I I really like uh, this movie. I think it's the best of the three that we watched, uh, and I I think. The first part of the movie uh, holds up really well as well uh, when there's not that much ac action going on and uh, Peter Blood is uh, basically just uh, uh, hanging around uh, on uh, Port uh, Royal and uh, 
wooing Olivia de Havilland uh, who ended up playing against Errol Flynn in a lot of uh, movies uh, and she sort of uh, didn't like that uh, as Errol Flynn often played pranks on her uh, for once he he put a dead snake in her panties uh, which wasn't that appreciated uh, oddly enough okay so so asshole uh, territory <laughs> yeah uh, I, I really like the, the suggestive uh, energy going on in, in the scene where she is bidding on him. Mm. Yeah, I really like uh, uh, his way of... Uh, first, <laughs> this uh, it's her father, I think, who uh, goes up to him and... Uh, or uncle. And I'm never sure about their relationships. But uh, he goes up and uh, he, he buys slaves uh, one by one. And when he uh, goes up to Peter Blood... Uh, he refuses to open his mouth for him to check out his uh, garniture and uh, he he stands with his um, hands in his sides and looks at him quite, uh, you know, he's really challenging him in a very funny way and um, that's where I think Errol Flynn uh, a bit outshines uh, Douglas Fairbanks uh, because... Oh man... Where, where are you going with this? Well, well I think <laughs> this uh, this quieter humor uh, Errol Flynn is much better at uh, than Douglas Fairbanks. Douglas Fairbanks was very good at the, at the brash, very loud sense of humor. Um, but Errol Flynn, uh, I think, has a better nuance scale. <laughs> yeah, if we're gonna go there, uh, <laughs> I gotta say I prefer Douglas Fairbanks. His uh, grinning skulking odd frame <laughs> <laughs> imbuing every frame with with this uh, energy mm. uh, he's always ready to to uh, burst out improv fighting uh, some extra or climb a wall or jump over some furniture you you're just you don't know where you have that where that guy is going mm. gonna do uh, so, so I, I like uh, that and, and and just that odd uh, posture that he, he has. Mm. Uh, I, I'm more into Fairbanks, I think. If we if we have to, maybe we don't have to. <laughs> I'm gonna someone. I'm gonna stay neutral on the Fairbanks versus yeah yeah it's the best uh, controversy. Best. <laughs> yeah. So um, and as you said, the the big fight against uh, Basil Rathbone is uh, on this small island. Um, in the middle of nowhere uh, and they're fighting each other on the shores of the island uh, which is a beautiful setting but um, I'm not sure that uh, Curtis uh, knew what he was doing here uh, since he doesn't have any walls to project shadows on as they're fighting. He's totally missing that uh, key aspect of... Uh... No, but the crashing waves in the background... Uh was was great it, it's like uh, a duel to the death or yeah, something no exactly like the, <laughs> no, but yeah, it's, it's yeah le, le, <laughs> le Vasseur, the the basil rathbone character is uh sorry spoiler alert yeah. but he's uh he's killed by uh by uh, captain blood on the shores like there's a splendid dramatic shot of him being stabbed with the sea behind them you know and mm. uh with the waves as as anders was saying and that's uh that's a, that's a beautifully composed shot. Uh, that's, mm. that's the perfect ending to to the duel. 
I agree. I agree. And when he's lying dead, dead and the waves go Absolutely. over him, it's very yeah beautiful uh, use of environment. And he's good at that. Uh, in all the duels, there's very good uh, uh, framing and, and use of environment mm. uh, with or without shadows. But the shadows are, uh, of course... Uh, Exhilarating. So, so that's <laughs> that set piece, the duel between Blood and Levasseur, uh, was was one of the only scenes uh, shot on location for Captain Blood, uh, uh. and you can see the difference, you know, with the scenes that uh, were built mm. on the set. Uh, sorry, sets yeah. that were built in the studio. Mm. Uh, so I, uh, I have I have to say a few words about um, why the why I think the fight is great because uh, it was staged by someone named uh, Fred Cavens. Fred Cavens, I don't know what, how the English pronunciation is, but uh, so he was the master, uh, the fencing master for the film. Mm. Uh, and uh, he choreographed uh, the fight. Actually, he choreographed the, the sword fight in all three films that we're talking about tonight. Actually, you know, it's funny because uh, I know that you guys were um, let down by, uh, by uh, Fairbanks, uh, Robin Hood, um, yeah. and, uh, you know, and that uh, the best film that you were talking about in that episode was uh, The Three Must Get Theirs, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. from uh, Max Linder. And guess who was the fencing master on that film? Oh. Um, <laughs> so, All right. So Fred Cavins, actually, that was, that was his first job as a, as a fencing master for a movie uh, on The Three Must Get Theirs. Uh, he was a French, he was a Frenchman like Max Linder. Uh, so he was hired by Linda to do that. And then Douglas Fairbanks saw what he was capable of. And he was like, okay, I want you as well for the Iron Mask and like the Black Pirate and stuff like this. And uh, mm. Fairbanks Jr. also hired him for stuff like the Corsican Brothers and the Exile. And he did many, many other films like uh, The Spanish Main, Anne of the Indies later on. And so all three movies that we're talking about tonight, plus The Adventures of Don Juan as well. So he was he was really the second most important uh, fencing master in Hollywood. The first one was the one employed by Fairbanks originally on the Mark of, the Mark of Zorro. Mm. Uh, his name so that's a Belgian name. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing. I'm gonna say it right, but it's uh, Henry Hutenhove. I hope that's it. Uh, who was from the Belgian Military Institute of Fencing and who was like uh, mm. he he was in charge of the Los Angeles uh, Athletics Club, and so mm. so he was hired by Fairbanks on The Mark of Zorro. And that was the first film where they knew what they were doing with the fencing, you know? Before that, before that, it was like, just, oh yeah, just clash the sword and, you know, it'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but that movie is really changed everything. And so, Hutton Hove was the first one. And he did, he did The Three Musketeers and Scaramouche and Prisoner of Zenda and Monte Cristo. Lots of stuff for uh, Fairbanks. Oh. Uh, and then Fred Cavins came into the picture as well, thanks to Max Linder. And I think I think the the important difference between the two was that Newton uh, Hove was about precision and accuracy, uh, but Cavins thought he had to you know set himself apart from what Newton uh, Hove was doing, and he thought, okay, I'm going some I'm going to do something exaggerated but still accurate. Uh, so, so if I may, like there's a, there's a great uh, quote that I'm going to read out from Fred Cavens because for anyone interested in swashbucklers at the time, I think gives a, a good insight into what they were doing. So Fred Cavens would say, all movements, instead of being as small as possible, as in competitive fencing, must be large, 
but nevertheless correct. The word is magnified. The routine should contain the most spectacular attacks and parries as possible, but it should remain logical to the situation. So the duel should be a fight and not a fencing competition, but should disregard at times classically correct guards and lunches. The attitudes arising naturally out of fighting should predominate. When this occurs, the whole performance will leave an impression of strength, skill, and manly grace. So that's it. Uh, so mm. I think he really, you know, the, he nailed it, and uh, most of his fights are really like beautiful to watch and, and really convey the feelings that he was going for. And I think that fight between uh, Peter Blood and Levasseur on the on the shore uh, is is perfectly explained by that uh, philosophy, I think, of uh, mm. choreography. And of course, uh, Michael Curtis was uh, also uh, a big component, I would say, uh, since he was uh, an old fencer. Uh, he actually was a part of the Hungarian fencing team that went to the Olympics in Stockholm in 1912. Oh, um, nice. So uh, he had a bit of a background and uh, I'm guessing he knew how to capture fencing uh, instinctively from his yeah. own background. Yeah, but uh, you know, at the time, like sometimes the fencing masters would be hired before the directors in some of the pictures, and mm. uh, the action scenes they would take weeks, like to prepare. And I know Michael Curtis mm. was was really big into pre preparing his movies. Like, yeah. He spent lots of time thinking of everything, like you know, camera placements and sets and objects placement and blocking and you know, all of that. Mm. Uh, especially for the fights, uh, for the fight sequences, I think he worked really closely, cr closely, sorry, with the. With the fencing masters. Well, yeah, it's a fantastic fight, of course. Uh, and uh, all of the fencing scenes we're going to see are pretty much uh, rad. Um, so um, I'm guessing we don't have that much more to say about Captain Blood. Wow, um, there's the third set piece. Well, yes, we have a third <laughs> set piece, yes. <laughs> and yeah, you're, you're, you're skipping the big naval exactly. battle. Which is Exactly, which is important because it, like... It's remade in the beginning of the Seahawk. <laughs> yeah, they're yeah. reusing. that. That's where I actually saw that they reused a lot of the material from uh, Captain Blood in the Seahawk. Hence its importance. And I just, uh, Jonas, I just get a chime yeah. in that uh, when they have, just when they, earlier when they have taken the, the Spanish mm -hmm. ship, uh, there's an intertitle. No, no, <laughs> there's not an intertitle. <laughs> I'm still in silent era. Uh, they say, then give them a taste of their own iron and we get some doll action. We've been talking <laughs> a lot of, about dolls uh, lately. So so the Spaniards are going back to their ship and uh, in these small boats mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Captain Blood and, and his uh, crew just uh, massacre them. Oh, yeah. And there's a wonderful shot of one of these small boats boats just uh, exploding and there are dolls flying everywhere <laughs> i love these uh, dolls yeah well okay let, let's uh, let's focus in on the the last uh, set piece the naval, the, battle. the naval battle yeah the piece de resistance of uh, captain blood that i wanted to skip over for some reason uh, no 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 <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry about that <laughs> no i think i think you have some great ideas actually in there you know this fog on the water um the, yeah. the, like the, the you know they approach the French ship like like they put a French flag on the mast to mm. make it, make it appear like they are a friendly ship, uh, so like the, they approach really uh, slowly and uh, the camera like 
he's on the deck among the you know amongst the men on the deck so at their level it's really like really immersive and then mm. then curtis like takes an, an exterior shot you see you see you see the cannon coming out of the opening you know on the side of the ship and the camera kind of does like a a, a tracking pan around it and you can see the man behind the cannon waiting for the battle to begin and when the battle begins you've got you've got great stuff like shots from inside the ship and the hull Mm. is broken or blown blown apart by you know uh by cannonballs you know, uh, that's one of the shots yeah. that we used in the absolutely, Seahawk, by absolutely. The way. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there is yeah, the Seahawks. Yeah, it's in, in yeah, yeah, very good shot. Yeah, and when the whole ship blows up, that's a huge. Oh man, what an explosion! Yeah, yeah. but there's, there's other Pretty stuff cool. that will be reused in the Seahawk, like uh, when when they start boarding the ship, they, you know, they send those grappling hooks. Uh, and oh one, yeah, and yeah. There's a guy actually caught by a grappling hook, and like like. Kill, yeah, kill, 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 you know, and <laughs> oh. that I think I don't horrible. Yeah, I death. don't think the shot is reused, but the idea uh, is reused. I think in uh, in the Seahawk. Yeah, I think it's another guy, mm. but, but still, like uh, this, yeah. at, so, at some stage in Captain death. Blood, at the end, you have the so you have some some guy on top of the mast, and mm. he's like he falls down on another guy who's mid mast on an, on a like horizontal you know beam and they, so he falls on top of that guy and then they fall down to the deck which is like several levels of action in one <laughs> shot which you know, it's, it's the kind of stuff that uh, sets me off in movies you know, yeah you it. feel bad for the stunt guys <laughs> yeah, there yeah. I they really had they had to take a real beating but, you know it's it's really like it's a scene where we see stuff i've never seen before in movies mm. uh, you know mm. at the time yeah. anyway you know the hull being blown blown apart from and the shot from the inside of the ship and you mm. know that kind of stuff i think was really you know people as you said jonas like people at the time didn't think that curtis was pushing the envelope but really it's in the details that you see that mm. he was really you know attempting stuff that was groundbreaking absolutely and uh, there's a guy swinging from a rope uh, kicking two guys out of uh, that's sitting on a on a beam uh, they're going into the water also uh, a shot that's been reused in the seahawk uh, and there's there's this uh, great sense of chaos uh, but it's controlled chaos uh, curtis knows exactly what he's doing with, with everything uh, a truly truly great uh, sea battle um yeah what else can be said well it was a success and was the reason why warner brothers continued to do swashbucklers in the 30s uh thanks to captain yes. blood which uh leads us directly into our next movie <laughs> yes the adventures of robin hood uh, that came out in 1938 uh with uh, adolf lynn olivia de havilland and basil rathbone so uh <laughs> The three guys, they, they were becoming an item almost. Um, so uh, I have to give um, Olivia de Havilland some props, I think, because I think she's uh, a very good actress and really delivers on her... I mean, her roles is uh, not that interesting. Uh, they're, they're these typical um, female roles from the 30s where she's like... Uh, the love interest and doesn't really have much going on except being in love with Errol Flynn's character. But she conveys this with uh, such uh, 
uh, this lightness in her appearance and her performance. Uh, and so uh, you get instantly smitten with her. Um, I think she's really, really awesome. Um, and uh, she is, I think, the only one uh, still living from these uh, movies. So if, if, if you're listening, Olivia, we really like your, really like your movies. <laughs> yeah, a big shout out to Olivia, uh, who is like turning 104 soon, I think. Yeah, Robin Hood. Um, <laughs> yeah, Robin Hood. Anders, what uh, what did you make of this movie? <laughs> no, but I I agree. She she is uh, very good at portraying this uh, infatuation or yearning. Uh, I think we've seen a few movies now where the female lead is pretty good at at uh, acting that, while the male lead is kind of. Uh, bland in that department mm. so I, I i sometimes have a hard uh, time discerning why they <laughs> yearn for them but uh, uh they do they do it's the attraction and of the sword yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, 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 for something yeah else, okay. you know? <laughs> Thanks. The pieces are <laughs> are coming together. Well, now. <laughs> they do detail a love scene in uh, this book that we're reading on Curtis uh, from Robin Hood, actually, where Olivia de Havilland uh, and Robin Hood is, or Errol Flynn, Robin Hood and Maid Marian is uh, uh, having this uh, moment uh, in a. I'm guessing it's a it's a castle tower or something like that, um, yeah. and. Uh, Apparently, Curtis uh, really wanted Olivia to give this her all. And she kissed uh, Errol Flynn so passionately that, uh, well, he was uh, showing off quite some uh, quite some stuff uh, beneath his uh, very tight uh, tights. Um, so, uh, yeah. Pro- You're going for the rating again? <laughs> Props to Olivia. We should have invited her on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Probably should have. Uh, But yeah, you you wonder what I thought about it. But I mean, initially, it has a good tempo. I I think Curtis is very good at uh, keep things moving. Uh, We get a pretty early uh, one-on-many brawl where they throw some furniture and flipping tables and stuff. Yeah, it's very (laughs) Jackie Chan, isn't it? yeah exactly it always works i i i love when they uh, throw furniture there's a really big chair he's throwing isn't it yeah yeah huge Uh, and and well and then he just starts to kill off people with his bow yeah uh and pretty murderous robin hood here yeah and i mean uh, all of the arrows being shot is shot by an expert bowman howard hill who was like, uh, I'm guessing, the uh, greatest uh, bowman of all time. He's the one who's doing that amazing shot where uh, he's um, splitting an arrow with another arrow, um, shooting on a target. That was uh, a trick, though. Yeah. That yeah, was yeah. a trick, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he actually made the shot. I think that there was an episode of Myth Butchers about it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Uh, yeah, how I'd hear it. Sorry, I interrupted you, Jonas. Go ahead. Well, uh, well, apparently he was uh, 
paid for every arrow being sent into uh, no 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 he wasn't paid the the uh, the stunt persons who were taking the arrows in the chest were paid like 150 dollars or something um i'm guessing it's pretty dangerous uh, even though they were padding of course and he wasn't shooting all of his power uh but uh, i mean can you imagine uh, prepping yourself to be shot in the heart, uh, <laughs> that must be quite uh, intimidating. Yeah, but I don't... Um, I, it's kind of like I heard uh, I heard about uh, Donnie Yen paying extra for uh, knocking people out, for real. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the next level, yeah. yeah. <laughs> next level, douchebagness. There is a beautiful shot with an arrow where, where the camera pans and follow it uh, when it uh, sticks to a door in this... Uh, Mm. Yeah, you're right. And actually, you know, I've I've read something about Curtis. Unfortunately, I've never seen it. But his first American film was a silent romance called The Three, uh, sorry, The Third Degree from 1926. And apparently, mm. there is a sequence shot from the perspective of a bullet in motion. So 1926. But so the film still exists, but it's only like at the Library of Congress or whatever. In the United States, oh, it's never been released, but reportedly it includes that sequence. Uh, so he's the originator, possibly. Possibly, yeah. Of, I don't know. I don't know. Nineteen twenty-six. <laughs> yeah. I don't know of any earlier attempts at shooting something like that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, he. I think you're right. And uh, Curtis has um, has great ideas. Like at some stage, you know this. In the first half of the film, there's like a montage of uh, Robin uh, robbing, uh, you know, uh, the king's men and, uh, you know, fighting for, for the people. And uh, at some stage, there's uh, like a, a guy who grabs a woman and uh, we understand that he wants to, you know, uh, attack her and molest her. But uh, Robin kills him with an arrow, shoots him in the back, uh, except before, before like, uh, you know, killing the guy. The arrow goes through a, a candle flame and ex- extinguishes oh, yeah. it. You know, mm. uh, and at the very at this very precise moment, there's like lightning from outside, and so 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 the shot is lit by the flame, then not, then by lightning, and like it's all in the space of like two seconds. You have like three different uh, types oh. of lights in one shot. Uh, you know, again, it's in details, but it's stuff that we haven't necessarily seen it before. You know. Mm. And I really like the the sound of the arrows. Uh, they're making this uh, fantastic. Uh, it's like this like iconic uh, sound that has been engraved in all of our conscious. Uh, this is how arrows sound when they are uh, moving to a target in movies. Uh, so yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So basically, what what you guys are saying because this this. Uh precise use of uh, light and move mood and uh, capturing movement and uh, sound uh, makes him at least an action author if nothing mm. else absolutely yeah yeah definitely and i mean uh, he wasn't the 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 um, the actual director who was intended to make this movie um william keely started to direct uh, robin hood um since uh, Errol Flynn had begged uh, Jack Warner to uh, not let Michael Curtis direct the movie. Um, so here he, ha- he had his uh, first uh, 
uh, way as a star to push the Warner Bros. Uh, no, let's let's skip Curtis for this one. Let's let's use another director. But uh, William Keeley wasn't uh, up to it. Uh, the production bogged down, and a couple of weeks into production, uh, Hal Wallace eventually decided that uh, well, let's uh, call in Curtis and save the movie uh, because the action is pretty stale and uninteresting. And uh, fortunately, uh, most of the action scenes hadn't been shot yet. So, uh, in rides our savior, Michael Curtis. And I'm guessing Errol Flynn is uh, sitting in a corner uh, steaming. Yeah, he's fuming, I think, yeah, at that, at that yeah. point. But uh, I think, I think, um, I think uh, Keely, uh, he shot like eight weeks approximately. And mm. it was only exterior scenes, you know, like... Um, outdoors in the they, they went to some kind of park in one of the states in the u.s um, and shot there and uh and curtis like shot all of the inst- indoors action scenes to the the, the big the, the one in the beginning when he comes with the deer and challenges mm. uh the would-be king and the one in the in the in the end uh the final duel uh so that was definitely curtis and i think he reshot mm. like parts of the tournament the archery tournament Mm. Curtis uh, reshot some of yeah. it, um, mm. and he added some scenes to the. You know, at some stage, Robin Hood and company they attack like a wagon, you know, a gold wagon in the forest. Mm. Uh, mm. They jump from the trees, you know, down. And, oh yeah. Uh, so that was definitely from Curtis as well. Uh, like he added some shots to it to make it more dynamic. It's it's so oh it's so funny. I, I was yeah, oh, Andrews, you go. Yeah, I, I was just gonna say. So, so this explains why why the movie kind of stopped dead for me uh, in the forest. But, but you you're saying he shot those scenes as well. <laughs> I was kind of hoping it was the. Well, but mostly, I mean, uh... yeah, most of the shots there are from Keely, but uh, like okay, yeah, they, they but are, Curtis like uh, okay, yeah. added some shots to the scenes. Yeah, too. okay, uh, he spruced yeah. it up. I, I think uh, those shots of when they're actually jumping down from the trees and it's it looks like they're. Uh, lumping it together uh, it looks i think he wanted them to look like they were f- they were like falling like fruit or something yeah uh, possibly yeah if if memory serves right uh, which explains why they look really weird when they're leaping down uh, onto these um, tax collectors that are coming through there um yeah but uh, yeah so um there's a lot of uh, interesting stuff not the least, of course, in the final duel. Um, I thought you were going to say Marion's wardrobe. Yeah, Made Marion's wardrobe is constantly changing. And uh, she has... I mean, she, she is, uh, she is uh, the original diva. She's fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, it reminded me kind of of Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in Rodil. Uh, switching costumes... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Every now and mm. then, throughout. Of course, yeah, of great, course, great of course. Stuff. But but the best part is uh, uh, Bess, uh, her uh, uh, elderly maiden, or yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you say when she wears uh, a kind of fleece uh, hubcap? Yeah, t- <laughs> and then later a uh, kind <laughs> of uh, red plastic trash can thing. Yeah, it's yeah on her head. Very good hats. Very good hats in this movie. And of course, uh, Robin Hood's pal, uh, I think he's called Red Will. Um, he has the best hat. He looks like a rooster. Uh, he is hilarious every time he appears. 
He rem- reminded me a bit of Owen Wilson, didn't he? Yeah, he had a bit no. of an Owen Wilson vibe to him, absolutely. Um, but uh, let's get into the, the final duel of the movie. Where, yeah, where, yeah, I'm where, just uh, rambling. Where Errol and uh, Basil are uh, going at it again. And here we have those fantastic shadows appearing. Um, they're doing a lot of things. They're they're uh, using a lot of props. They're they're turning over tables. Uh, they're running around. Uh, um, he's using camera movements uh, very acutely, and uh, uh, they're running down stairs fighting. And uh, it sort of feels like um, everything's happening. <laughs> it's a great fight. And I think they wanted to um, top themselves actually from Captain Blood. They felt like uh, let's let's uh, bring this to another level. Absolutely, um, yeah. you, you know. I think when you look at the duels from all three films, you feel like every time they mm. make the new one, they want to top themselves from the previous one. You know. Mm. So yeah, so I, I think this one really expands on the one from Captain Blood, and it kind of announces the the hyper rear heights that it's going to reach in the Seahawk at the end. Uh, but I love, I love, of course, this is use of architecture. Uh, actually, you know, you know, sometimes they're fighting on the, on stairs, you know, like those, those stairs that go around uh, mm. a tower. Sp- spiral staircases. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're fighting on that and there's no like, it's open, you know, there's no rail, rail guard or anything. Um, and it looks exactly like have you seen the rocketeer from joel johnston mm, no i don't think i have i saw it in the cinema i don't remember much so like uh, <laughs> timothy dalton i think he's he's playing like a hollywood movie star uh mm. and he, he's shooting a swashbuckler and it looks exactly like that scene like oh, okay. uh, like okay. it, it's almost the same set and uh you know i don't know i don't know about the moves but it, it looks a lot like the final duel from uh from that robin hood um and uh yeah some pretty impressive stuff uh like uh, the stuntman fred graham who was uh who was doubling uh rathbone so during the final four he broke his ankle um so oh. yeah it, but the fall itself is pretty impressive actually uh, i thought they made a great job they did a great job there and um mm. so the film was like a, he was budgeted at under two million, but I think it, it almost cost two million dollars. And uh, one thing that's rarely mentioned, you know, is like today as well. But at the time, it was true as well that a lot of the action was shot by second unit directors. Uh, mm. And uh, you know, we, we rarely talk about those guys. And um, so the one on Robin Hood, on the Adventures of Robin Hood, was uh, named B. Reeves Easton, and he was like widely known in Hollywood for shooting complex and dangerous uh, action scenes. So there was there was a 1925 Ben-Hur movie that had to be shot with like 42 cameras and, oh, and included a lot of horse casualties. Like mm. uh, they killed a lot of horses to shoot that scene, unfortunately. Mm. And then there was also the movie The Charge of the Light Brigade, directed mm. by Curtis with Errol yeah. Finn uh, from 1936. Uh, and also here the action was supervised by B. Reeves Eason and uh, they used 100, sorry, 300 horses, 280 extras and again there were some like casualties in for the horses and like several injuries for the stuntmen 
And he also did like the big burning of Atlanta scene for Gone with the Wind a year later, mm. a year after, a year okay. after Robin Hood. Yeah. So that guy, like, mm. you know, don't talk. We don't talk about him too much, but he was important for the history of action filmmaking in in uh, Hollywood. And he was here on the Adventures of Robin Hood to supervise uh, the main action scenes. So mainly the 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 first one with the deer when Robin Hood challenges the king, and the last one. Uh, the climax uh, mm. so yeah I think a lot can be uh, attributed to him even though he's not really an unsung hero because he did some despicable stuff especially with the animals um, mm, yeah. on, on his uh, on his sets but um, yeah he was he was important at the time as well and, you know I have a I have a theory uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna lay it on you guys uh, tell me if I'm uh, <laughs> If I'm talking shite, but um, you know, uh, when I when I watch all those three movies that we're talking about tonight, um, and I, I watch Robin Robin Hood, I think is my favorite actually. Uh, maybe because of the Technicolor, uh, I don't know, but uh, I think it has a vitality and an energy for most of the film that uh, I ca- I can really agree with. Um, but like, I think in Robin Hood, uh, it feels like I'm seeing spectacle rather than action so let me explain myself like in captain blog in the seahawk the mm-hmm. action that we see it derives from the plot right like it's it's an inevitable consequence of the events that are presented to us uh yes. so like uh if like it, it kind of writes itself into the into the script uh and none none of the action scenes i think in captain blog in the seahawk if you if you remove them you lose plot information, but you don't lose character information. Uh, I don't think they help in deepening our knowledge or understanding of the characters. So, so it's like it's like plot-driven action. But in Robin Hood, it feels like the plot is kind of thought and conceived around the set pieces, and you know, like chains them together. So almost feels like when writing the script, they're like, okay, we need like we need like an, an initial. Uh, set piece, and then we'll have the tournament, and then we'll have the final duel. And okay, let's let's come up with a story that kind of glues mm. everything together, mm. you know. Uh, and like, if you remove those uh, those action scenes, you lose a lot of information about the hero. I think you know, in in the mm. in the deer scene in the beginning, without it, then you you are not witness to his to to the fact that he's a dashing hero and a rebel. And mm. if you remove the attack on the on the tax collectors in the forest, then you lose his uh, the information that he's a, a great uh, he he has intelligence and strategic abilities. You know that he can he can outsmart his adversaries, and then the archery tournament is important for his pride and arrogance. You know mm. because like he knows it's a trap, he goes anyway, uh, and he's caught like. And, uh, you know, without it, then you lose an important character beat. And, uh, yeah, I thought it's like, I thought of it as spectacle in the sense that the sequences, they're conceived as a show of character sprinkled with great physical and cinematic feats. Uh, and it's more like character driven action mm. as opposed to plot driven. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting take, actually. I can, uh, I can totally see where you're coming from that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it makes me appreciate the movie more. <laughs> Actually, it's a very good, uh, very good take. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, uh, yeah, it totally explains him. Uh, he's a man of action. 
rather than the other characters in um, like the uh, the other characters yeah they cut in the action yeah they they must they must perform action you know Mm. to Mm. like for the story but like i think in robin hood like you say it's really the man of action yeah which which makes him uh robin hood uh an action star of today uh one of the first uh, perhaps um so yeah very interesting take um great um maybe we should uh, leave with that great take um leave robin hood behind and uh, <laughs> finish off this session with the seahawk uh that came out in 1940 with uh, Errol Flynn but no not with Olivia de Havilland and Basil Rathbone because uh, Basil Rathbone couldn't be bothered Olivia de Havilland wasn't that keen on uh, doing another movie with Errol Flynn and being uh, um, pranked all the time (laughs) Uh, so yeah they had to uh, come up with uh, a new cast of characters Uh, Brenda Marshall plays the uh, female heroine uh, Donna Maria Claude Rains uh, who was also in Robin Hood uh, plays Don José Álvarez de Córdoba and uh, the uh, as you put it Alex the, uh, the, uh, the, the villain of action the villain with the sword is played by Henry Daniel uh, who plays Lord Wolfingham and uh, also in a supporting role Alan Hale who played uh, Little John in uh, Robin Hood, and who actually played that part in uh, the Douglas Fairbanks uh, movie as well, and later played the part once again in the 50s. So this Alan Hale guy was really uh, synonymous with um, with uh, Little John, uh, and he followed uh, Flynn in a lot of movies, being a, a quirky supporting actor. Uh, yeah, so we're into the Seahawk. Uh, we're back in the swashbuckling pirate uh, things going on. Um, Adolf Flynn's character, Jeffrey Thorpe, is, uh, well, he's sort of employed by Queen Elizabeth and sort of not, uh, going about uh, raiding um, Spanish ships. Um, Spain is preparing their big fleet to uh, charge and attack England. Uh, and England is uh, trying to um, uh, trying to stave this conflict uh, with diplomacy, uh, and Errol Flynn uh, on the side, sort of not condoning his actions, but sort of yes, totally condoning his actions. It's, sorry, if I may, I think I think it's a great example of the idea behind the swashbucklers you know he's a pirate but he's a good guy you know yeah <laughs> it's, like, it's, uh, it's it, he really isn't a pirate he works for the queen but he employs pirate methods but he has a code of honor you know this kind of gray area where the swashbuckler could work without being mm. uh, stopped by the haze code and by you know retaining that yeah. kind of exotic flavor yeah um so another rogue for us to uh, uh dissect uh anders what did you uh find uh, with the seahawk was it uh, <laughs> what did i find well uh, it, it do- in action it does, terms uh, i guess it, it kind of emulates a couple of different movies it it feels like it's it's kind of a political thriller or something mm. and and then for a while it's uh almost an heist movie mm. 
and then some kind of uh, one of those uh, jungle survival <laughs> movies uh, for a while yeah. <laughs> and then back to naval battle uh, 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 the action I-, I thought it worked really well in this uh, big uh, mass battle uh, mm. when everyone is fighting everyone it goes mm. uh, into these uh, shorter uh, focusing more uh, in close-ups on different parts of the fight mm. uh, many different people doing stuff uh, <laughs> or what to say so I, I, I really liked the, the way it uh, it moved moved around in this big battle uh, focusing on uh, on different aspects yeah it's the fact that Curtis really you know goes from wide panoramic shots establishing shots of the battle and then drills in onto you know specific duels inside this this battle yeah, yeah. and that that he jumps between uh, several different it, it was the most impressive yeah i mean uh, that that's that's me. one of curtis's uh, strengths i think he's always uh, pushing the story and the action forward uh it it never really gets uh, any boring uh it it's always uh, something else is coming up uh and he's very good at uh, this tempo. Uh. Yeah, because that that uh, cutting between different aspects of a fight, uh, usually that uh, bogs movies down because uh, you stay at one fight uh, for a bit too long and then you go back to the mm. other fight that is supposed to go on at the same time. And uh, I, I mean, it, it just drags out time in a very... It's hard to... Uh, balance mm, mm. so so i think he handles it very well uh my go-to guy for for this these things are usually samo hung mm. uh who is a- expert at at jumping between different uh fights mm. that are going on at the same time yeah. so so it reminded me a bit of that <laughs> a I bit suppose. of samo hung in uh, the seahawk that's great um and Yeah, in, in the structure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we, of course, uh, have uh, this great climactic uh, sword fight, um, which doesn't really... Uh, it, it is a bit uh, trick-filmed, since the actor Henry Daniel couldn't... Uh, he couldn't use a sword for his life. Uh, <laughs> he was really poor. Uh, and so they had to trick-film this with the stunt actor. Um, and only use uh, close-ups of uh, Henry Daniel. Um, but Trick film? I thought you meant it was stop motion or well, something. Well, <laughs> they filmed behind him, I guess, uh, most parts, uh, showing off Errol going at him. But I don't think it takes anything from the no. scene. I think it, it uh, works very mm. well uh, with choice of angles and, and stuff. And, and uh, I, I love how he is... Uh, the placement of them in in uh, in the room or in the space, uh, yeah. Yet again, his use of environment or or you said architecture. Uh, these shots are very well. Uh, yeah, I I like the placement of of the fencers in these. Uh, mm. So movies. yeah, w- once again, uh, Fred Cavins uh, staged the fight, uh, and uh, yeah. actually, it's funny that you should mention uh, Jonas that. Uh, that the actor was uh, doubled extensively because the uh, 
the main stunt double was Ralph Faulkner, who was the American saber champion at the Olympics oh, yeah. uh, twice in a row. And so he started his career working for Fred Gavins, but then he became an extremely important uh, fence, fencing master in Hollywood as well, in his own right. Mm. After the war, after the Second World War, he worked, he worked for Columbia Pictures and he made like dozens of swashbucklers for them. Um, so that was great, like seeing him, you know, uh, the film hist- historian, the would-be film historian in me was like, oh yeah, so that's the, that's the scene where, you know, he really um, shows off um, his skills under Kevin's uh, direction. Mm. Yeah, that's, mm. uh, like again, like, uh, as you said, like he, I think Curtis is trying to top what he did in Robin Hood with the shadows mm. and expression, expressionistic um use of light uh, and mm. architecture and uh, I think I think the scene took two weeks to film actually uh, yeah, to do, yeah, yeah. which is uh, which is quite a long time at the, you know at the time um, yeah I mean Hong Kong movies of course uh, film fight scenes for like 10 weeks or something but uh, uh, back in the day this really wasn't the case yeah. uh, you you needed to to be on schedule um, but uh, Curtis really took his time here no, that's evident. Yeah, I guess mainly Jackie Chan and and uh, people like uh, I mean the big guys have have un, uh, more or less unlimited time, I suppose. Yeah, and uh, other Hong Kong movies are are done pretty quick, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, but yeah, yeah. But the, the perfect example is like the, you know, um, Drunken Master Two. Uh, well, they filmed like for what four months, I think. The, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they filmed the final fight <laughs> for fight. four months. Yeah. Yeah, but wow. but, uh, but then yeah. again, like you know, that was like fifty years or forty years, no, yeah, fifty years later, um, uh, after the Seahawk, you know. So yeah, at the time at the time of the Seahawk, even though it's a major picture from a major studio, um, that was pretty pretty unusual that it would go on for that long. And I think I think the the producers were afraid that they were really you know overdoing it and going mm-hmm. over budget. And I think at the time, like there was a flu as well on the set. Uh, oh yeah. yeah yeah and like Errol Flynn was sick and Curtis was sick as well and uh, yeah that mm. was it was a really difficult uh, time for them but uh, so the, the, like the Seahawk cost less money than uh, Robin Hood uh, mm. it wasn't in Technicolor because like they had like mixed results from the box office from other Technicolor films so they went mm. back to black and white uh, but, but that being said Sorry, I, I must say, I must like go back quickly on the opening uh, naval battle. But they have actual ships; like they're not they're not in the sea, but they have yeah, huge. Yeah. They have complete ships. They're not models. They're like you know full scale ships that they are uh. destroying, like you know, um, uh, tearing to pieces. And uh, so I know they use some stock footage from Captain Blood, but I think Hal Wallace wanted to only use stock footage from Captain Blood. And every day, Curtis would film new scenes anyway <laughs> because he didn't want he didn't want to do that. <laughs> like you had the memo saying, "What are you doing? We already have the shots. Stop yeah, shooting yeah, your yeah, stuff." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is this is totally <laughs> meaningless. Uh, but I mean, they they had built uh, this huge uh, tank, uh, Warner Bros, yeah. uh, for for this battle with the big ships, the real ships. Yeah, um, which which is mind boggling to think of. That they actually had like this big uh, water tank uh, and two old uh, 16th century uh, ships uh, in it. 
and and like uh, they could you know they could they could make it appear like there were waves and you know like the ships were yeah they were, were sinking and stuff <laughs> like this all because they had like you know hydraulic rams in place and stuff like this which mm. is it's, it's insane like that was really that was really the yeah, i mean that was really uh an example of how much money could go into some of the sets and yet the producers are like okay let's use some stock footage for the rest of the battle <laughs> which is yeah, just just weird when you think about it i'm really thankful to people like curtis who think no we have to make it bigger and better than captain blood so i'm i'm gonna yeah. shoot some more stuff yeah definitely i've gotten a a, a great big appreciation for curtis uh, after watching these movies i mean uh, the, these kinds of movies aren't my favorite type of movies uh, for sure and i think these uh, 30s movies uh, they tend to drag a bit for me, but uh, you can totally appreciate the artistic sensibilities going into this movie. Um, and uh, I think, uh, I mean, you and me, Anders, we both talked about this. You mentioned that uh, uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, the composer, had been inspired by another composer earlier on, uh, Alex. Um, and uh, oh, we yeah. both... Yeah, and we both, uh, me and Anders, uh, when we watched um, The Seahawk, uh, said to each other, doesn't this sound uh, a lot like Star Wars? Uh, and then we uh, we did a checkup on it, and uh, yes, of course, John Williams uh, was uh, greatly inspired by Korngold oh, yeah. uh, writing the Star Wars uh, theme songs. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot of Korngold... I mean, John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and, you know, this generation of great composers. Uh, I love I love the music from Congo in all three films. Like, he was really some someone who could create infinite variations on a theme while keeping it consistent, you know, and he would do very quick tonal shifts. He would go from romance to adventure and, like, two notes, you know, uh, so you would have, like, those emotions, they would come clashing with one another in one scene. And you have the sweeping melodic movements and uh, energetic rhythmic accompaniments uh, that really punctuate the films. And uh, I thought he did. I, he was really the. I think he was the most important uh, composer at the time with uh, Max Steiner, who did King Kong, you know, mm-hmm. um, at the time for for adventure movies. You know, um, that was. I think I think it really elevates all three films to a higher standard. Well, I. I... I would uh, agree to an extent, but I do think they're overusing music uh, in the 30s movies. Uh, we, me and Anders have been talking <laughs> about this a lot. Uh, I was just going to chime in, but but uh, if if uh, if people have listened, uh, I, I guess it's starting to get obvious that I don't like music in films. <laughs> I guess I guess what, what <laughs> almost that I guess what you could say against Gold <laughs> is that. He does do some Mickey Mousing. Uh, you know, yeah. he, he syncs the music exactly to the action beats, almost, oh, to yeah. a, almost to a caricatural degree. But I find it irresistible because there's so much joy and feeling of escapism in it. I, I'm totally on board. Well, uh, absolutely. I, I really liked when, uh, I think it's in The Seahawk, when uh, Errol Flynn's character is making a speech to his men in the beginning of the movie, after a battle, I think it is. Uh, and the music stops as he's speaking. And the minute 
the second he has uh, finished speaking and everybody's cheering for him, the music soars to a triumphant beat. Uh, and it was almost uh, comically um, triumphant. Uh, but in a way, I, I like that. That was, uh, that was a bit cute almost, uh, the way the music accentuated everything. Yeah, I think it's part um, of the charm of the film. I should, and I think yeah. I think the music is just so good. Like I don't I don't mind I don't mind at all. And and, and I just gotta say that whatever uh, I think of these movies, it's hard to say they are. <laughs> I mean, they are very well made, mm. as we have uh, said repeatedly. So so there's always that. Yeah, you you can't fault the the craftsmanship uh, of uh, Mike Curtis. Yeah, and everybody on on. On these movies. Absolutely. I mean... And I mean, uh, almost everybody gives their all. Uh, all of the actors, uh, even though... Even the bit part actors, uh, like the um, the maid too, Maid Marion. Uh, both Anders and me were thinking, wow, she's really good. She's got a crappy role where she's playing this uh, uh, very... Uh, antsy um old-timey maid looking out for maid marion's uh, virginity and stuff like that uh but uh, she was uh, she was fantastic uh although i mean uh, she really encapsulated that character uh and a lot of these character actors of course played those parts over and over and over and over again they they play the same part in new movies over and over and again. But uh, I find it cute as well. Uh, I find it very endearing. That it's so... Uh, it's very formulaic in a way. But uh, I can really get behind it as well. Um, so, uh, yeah. I'm guessing this sort of summarizes um, these movies for us. Um and uh, Michael Curtis for us. Uh, Alex, do you have any last words? Any, any last words? <laughs> Before you We're going to have to kill you after this, yeah, Alex. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Too much has been said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been, I, recently, I've been wondering when, when uh, looking at your timeline on Twitter, and now even more so in this episode, why are we the ones doing this? We should just... <laughs> leave it to you i know oh, yeah. you guys you know you guys are great i love your approach um i hope i didn't uh didn't speak too much i did i did warn Anders beforehand that i tend to go no i, tend I to love go on tangents you know uh, <laughs> but uh um, no 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 any last words well uh no I'm, I'm just i'm just really glad we talked about the genre in the 30s because uh yeah, I think it was important for uh, action cinema at the time. Uh, it's it's unmissable if you want to trace uh, the history of the of the action genre, and uh, so that was the second cycle, like really the golden age of Hollywood swashbucklers, actually of sound swashbucklers, uh, because after that, uh, really the interest of the people will change, and there's World War Two. Uh, so for mm. a time the swashbucklers just vanish for a couple of years and then they come back in the late 40s and in the 50s but always mm. with like smaller budgets you know there's, there's less the scope is less wide uh, less mm. impressive and uh, and the, I think the best swashbucklers that were made after the war 
actually came either from England or from, Fran- from France. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially in the 60s, like in the 50s, you had a lot of uh, television series, swashbucklers from, from England. Uh, and then in the 60s, it was really a, a series of French swashbucklers that were, um, that were really setting the standard there. Uh, mostly from director André Unbel, who uh, I'm sure you guys will do an episode on. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we have to. <laughs> well, if if you if you will guess it. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and the swashbuckler, of course, uh, has tried to live on today uh, with the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and uh, so on. Uh, although now it's uh, in a, in a in a slump, I guess. Um, but I'm sure it will return, as it always does. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, isolated yeah. franchise, isn't it? The Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. Yes, I mean, sword fighting wise, we will probably look more towards Vusha cinema mm, yeah. uh, ahead. I I think. I mean. Uh, I think Swashbucklers uh, has kind of uh, been important for that uh, genre as well. Although that Vusha has a long uh, uh, literary tradition, of course. Mm. But I think Douglas Fairbanks movies were very popular in in China as well, as they were uh, (laughs) everywhere. Yeah, Yeah, that's... uh, I mean, he was truly the first uh, movie star who... uh, was uh, I mean he was so uh, big all over the world uh, and I'm guessing Errol uh, got that uh, as well even though he came to hate the swashbuckler genre um, but that's life um, and uh, yeah I'm guessing uh, we're gonna have to close up shop now it's only been uh, an hour and 30 minutes yeah, we could continue. You wanna, yeah, we can go on. <laughs> I mean, Anders wanted to uh, listen to us uh, talk for like 10 hours straight. So uh, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, a bit disappointed. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry, Anders. Sorry. Uh, so anyway. But you, you, I mean, you have read books and stuff. Uh... <laughs> We're trying too much, eh? Yeah. No, no. So not at all. Uh, thanks, Alex. Thank you so much for uh, joining us in this episode. No, thanks, guys, for having me. That was great. And you can follow Alex at uh, at Head Exposure on Twitter. Uh, is there any other place people can uh, chime in with your thoughts on action cinema? No, that's about it. Okay. Thank you and goodbye, everybody.